Thanks, Ed, and thanks again, guys, for going through a long Bible reading. Um, hopefully, as the talk progresses, you'll see the importance of why we've just done that. Um, but first, let's talk about mid-year conference. You might think that I've got it around the wrong way. Normally, we talk about that at the end of semester one before it's happened. Uh, but our annual conference every year is called Mid-Year Conference, MYC, and we go away for a week and we study everything the Bible has to say about a particular topic. And this year's topic was the Trinity. Uh, we were studying the doctrine of God. Uh, now, I'm sure you can talk to the person next to you later on about um, those who went and, and how it was. I'm sure they'll say some really good things. But over the course of the week, we asked a bunch of different questions. We asked things like, who is God? Uh, what do we know about his nature? As we probed you the Trinity, we asked things like, how can he be one God and yet three persons who are distinct, but somehow still one supreme being? And we had a whole bunch of really, really helpful reflections over the week. And I hope that it's something you'll consider coming to next year. But it occurs to me as I kind of thought back over the week and what we did, that there was one question that we didn't ask. What does God look like? Now, those of you who are at MYC have an answer, I suppose. You'd probably say something like, well, Jesus. Because Jesus in John chapter 14 says that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But it only takes a moment's reflection to realise that it just shifts the question a bit down the road because we have no idea what Jesus looked like either. Now, apart from some references to his scars and a vague description in Isaiah about the fact that his appearance was nothing in it that, that we would desire him, we have absolutely zero visual descriptions of the person of Jesus. We don't know whether he was short or tall. We don't know whether he was thin or fat. We don't know whether he was ethnic or American. Okay, we may know that one. But my point is simply this. The Bible is entirely silent on what our God looks like. Now, that hasn't stopped people from trying to fill in the gaps. And so I've engaged in my favourite pastime, which is to put Christian terms into Google. Uh, now, I know this is becoming a bit of a habit at public meetings, so you'll be pleased to know that the committee has already tabled a motion to limit me to three Google searches a semester. But because I know you're dying to see what turned up, here's what I came up with. Now, here are my top three plus one. Okay? Here's the first one. Uh, this is fairly standard. This is the grandfather in the sky. This is God up in the clouds with his robe and his beard looking down benevolently on creation. Uh, another one, and this one kind of throws to the Trinity, uh, we did at NYC. Uh, apparently God is an old, tired ruler guy with a kind of a, a weak-faced dude holding a cross and a bird. So that's the God that, that we worship. Uh, number three, uh, and this one, I apologise for the watermark, but there was no way I was going to spend money on this. Um, I'm not even sure what to make of that. It's sort of like Barbie Jesus with, with, with rays coming out of his chest. Again, on clouds, um, quite large, actually, and no legs. Uh, and then this is my plus one. I thought uh, this was just worth throwing up there. Um, this is Babushka doll God. Um, I think what's going on here is you've got the father in whom the, in his bosom is Jesus. And then I think the third one is the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm not sure. Now, here's the thing as we look at those descriptions. Why are we talking about this? I think it's because if we stare at any one of those pictures for longer than a moment, it begins to influence how we understand who God is. And that in turn will shape how we relate to him. And the controversial claim that Deuteronomy 4 makes is that those images up on the screen have the potential to be the most dangerous 
and offensive things you have ever seen. Now, given the statistics that the proportion of us in the room who've seen hardcore pornography, that should make you sit up and pay attention, that these things could be up there as the worst things you've ever seen. But to understand why this might be the case, we need to first understand what's happening in Deuteronomy chapter 4. So if you've got your Bibles, keep them open. Let's have a look at verse 1. Now, if you want a summary of today's chapter, that long chapter that we just read, it's really verse 1. Maybe we could have just read that and gone home. But here's what it says. Now, Israel, hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and go up and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Now, now remember what we saw last week. Deuteronomy, it's a series of speeches given by the prophet Moses to the nation of Israel just before they enter the promised land. And what Moses is seeking to do is persuade the Israelites to respond to God's great promises. The previous generation disobeyed God, so they perished in the wilderness. And so he wants them to respond to God's promises by trusting him and obeying the law that God gives them, because then they will live in the land. And Deuteronomy 4 is the crescendo of that first speech, chapters 1 through to 4. And it's like a pep talk. It's almost like he's kind of starting to G them up and get them ready for the law that he's about to tell them in chapter 5 and the following chapters. And so he begins in verses 1 to 8 by telling them that they are to hear because the law of God is blessing and life. The law is to be followed, verse 1. In verse 2, it's not to be added to or subtracted from. They're to keep it pure. Because if it's warped or if it's twisted, then the way that they will live will not be the way that God has asked them to live and so it won't result in the outcome that God promises. And in fact, it's not just kind of, you know, happy outcome, you'll, you'll get some more Skittles or you'll get less Skittles or whatever it is. This is a matter of life and death. Have a look at verse 3. You saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor, but all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. Now, for your interest, Moses is referencing an incident that happened in Numbers 25. Now, and this is recent history. This would have been fresh in their minds. We're talking like this happened last year or the last two years, kind of fresh. And what happened was, as they're on their way to the Promised Land, this is the map from last week, they're kind of heading up past Edom, all the way up to Moab, which is where the green thing is. Um, they come across a bunch of Moabite women. And the Israelite men start to have sex with the Moabite women, and you know what happens, you get emotionally attached. And these women invited them to sacrifice to their gods, the Baal of Peor. And so as punishment, what God did is he sent a plague to kill everyone who had been unfaithful. And Moses' point here is, is quite simple. Those who disobeyed God's law died. All of those, however, in verse 4, who held fast to the Lord your God and didn't do such a thing are still alive today. They're the people in the crowd that he's speaking to. And so what happens in Numbers 25 becomes a specific example of a theme that runs all the way through Scripture. And if you've just started Know and Share the Gospel, the equip course that we run, and it's not too late to get onto that, one of the things you'll see is just how important it is to live under the rule of God. In the Old Testament, it's his law. In the New Testament, it's the rule of King Jesus. And to live under that rule, the rule of God, it leads to life and blessing. But a refusal to live under that rule leads to punishment and death. Now that has some very obvious implications, I think, for you and for me. But there was something else at stake here for Israel that Moses alludes to in the rest of this section. 
And that's the blessing of the nations. This is verses 5 to 8. Remember the promises that God gives to Abraham. Abraham would be blessed and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And have a look what Moses says here. He says in verses 6 to 8 that if they keep God's law, the other nations will look on and go, Whoa, that's a nation that I want to be a part of. It's heaps better than my crummy nation. And so what would happen is as Israel fulfilled the law of God that they were receiving from him, that law was not onerous and restrictive. It was attractive. And if they kept it, not adding to it, not subtracting from it, the nations would be drawn to Israel and from there blessing to the world would flow. So obeying the law, it's a pretty big deal, according to Moses. It's life and blessing. And not just for Israel, but for the world. And that really is the thrust of his speech. That's what he wants them to understand. But he wants to help them get there. So he gives them a couple more reasons to listen and obey. So what he does is he encourages them to keep the law by, in verse 9, telling them to remember what it was like when God gave them the law. So he says here in verse 9, Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. And then in verse 10 he says, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me, literally that it's fear me, as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and you stood at the foot of the mountain, he started to describe that experience, while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and laws you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. As I look at those verses, if I had to choose one word to describe what it was like for Israel to receive the law, it would be fear. Now, originally I had terrifying. And I think terrifying is a really good word uh, because if you go back to Exodus chapter 20, uh, which records the event of the giving of the law, this is what we read. Uh, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. But terrifying didn't really quite cover it because there's more to it than that because look at what Moses goes on to say in verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Now, that's kind of weird. They're to be afraid, but they're also not to be afraid. And I think the only way that you can make sense of that is to understand that the experience of receiving the law was designed by God to impress upon his people, not a terror, but a deep and proper fear that the God who had chosen them to be his people was a God that they had to take seriously. And we see that, I think, in the end of today's chapter in verses 32 to 39. We're going to jump around a bit today. Moses says in verse 32 to the Israelites, as he finishes off his speech, Ask from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? And what's he referring to? Well, as we keep reading, it's two things. First of all, it's the receiving of the law at horror, what we've been talking about. Verse 33, has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? 
And then verse 34, here's the second thing. It's their rescue from slavery in Egypt. Has any other God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation? And he continues on, but really the answer to Moses' questions are really simple and really obvious. In the entire history of the human race, neither of these two things have ever been done. And these two things in Israel's experience are meant to drive them to one inescapable conclusion, which is the conclusion that he gives us in verse 35. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Beside him, there is no other. Big point. So he emphasizes it and he says it all again in the next couple of verses. But this time he uses the two realms of creation, the heavens and the earth. And he says in verse 36, from heaven, he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth, he showed you his great fire and you heard his words from out of the fire. Again, this is giving the law. And Moses says, God gave them the law, and this is what it was meant to to tell them in verse 39, so that the Israelites would acknowledge that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below, and there is no other. And so returning to the earlier chapter, earlier part of the chapter, what Moses calls on them to remember when he calls on them to remember the giving of the law, he's calling on them to remember the nature of the God who has claimed them. He is big business. In fact, he is the only business. And he's to be responded to with fear and obedience. Now take a moment to kind of think about that for a second. Because I think that if you're an Israelite in the crowd listening to Moses as he said this, you might kind of be scratching your head here. Because all of the experiences that Moses is calling on them to remember that he's just described to them never actually happened to them. Everybody who was there at the giving of the law is now dead. They perished in the wilderness because they disobeyed God. And so my question is, how is it that Moses can say you were there and you need to remember it? And that's my question for you. So with the person next to you for 30 seconds, how is it that Moses can say that this generation of the Israelites were there? Go. Alrighty, that should be enough just to whet the appetite. Um... We're not going to feed back today because of time, uh, but let me tell you what I think is going on here. I think there are two things going on here. Uh, the first is that I think what Moses is doing is rhetorically positioning this generation of Israel to consider themselves as the first generation of Israel, to put themselves in their parents' shoe, and, and in so doing, realise that just as God directly gave his law to their parents, he is now on the edge of the promised land directly giving his law to them. It's an exercise of empathy. They had to take it just as seriously as though they were standing on the edge of the mountain as God gave his terrifying law. But that in and of itself, I think, is not enough to make sense of the language that Moses uses. Because if you look at verse 9 and 10, he doesn't say, don't forget the things that happened in your people's past. He says to them, don't forget the things your eyes have seen. And so I want to think, I just think that this is suggesting that there's more than just a rhetorical device here happening that's going to help him pass his arts degree, right? Moses is saying something far more profound than just a cool kind of literary technique. And so let me ask you, what does Moses say that the Israelites saw? Well, as we look at our passage, verse 11, we see that they saw a mountain covered in cloud and fire. But that's about it. In fact, when we get to verse 12, Moses emphasizes what they didn't see. They didn't see God. 
Instead, what he emphasises is what they heard. And you would have seen that already throughout our passage, the emphasis on hearing the voice of the Lord coming out of the fire. And I think what Moses is implying is that as he repeats the words that God spoke at Horeb to the first generation, as they read them aloud from the Exodus account in the years to come, as the generations move on, and this is the second thing that I think is going on, hearing God's spoken word, irrespective of where you are in history, is to hear God speak truly and directly to you. And I think that's why all the references to hearing in Deuteronomy 4 are so theologically significant. You see, when Moses begins the chapter and he says, now Israel, hear the decrees and laws, he's not just making a comment about the literacy rate and the fact that they didn't have a printing press and that the only way they'd find out about the law is if somebody spoke it to them. No, he's making a fundamental statement about their religion. It is a religion of hearing and not of seeing. And we see that in the very description of the experience that Moses says that they genuinely had and that they had to remember. Verse 10, the Lord assembles the people before him so that they will hear his words. And that's the thing that will teach them to fear, to teach them to fear him. Verse 12, the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. And what this tells us is that the God of the Bible, the God who is above heaven and earth, besides whom there is no other, is a speaking God. And the way that he reveals himself to us, regardless of our particular place in history, is through his words. And so when you hear him speak, whether it's in person or whether it's through a mediator like Moses, or whether it's a written Bible in front of you or a Bible read out to you, we hear him truly and completely. And so when Ed read the Bible out for us just a moment ago, like the Israelites in Deuteronomy, we had a genuine experience of God speaking to us. There wasn't any darkness or fire. Ed's too friendly for that. But as God spoke to us about that darkness and fire in this particular chapter, it should prompt us to have the same fear that he called the Israelites to have. So if I could just make a minor application at this point, um, stop checking Messenger and flicking text messages to people when the Bible's being read at your church. Because it's at that point in the service that God speaks directly to his people. And we all do it, but the reality is it is disrespectful to God and it draws people away from the fear that God calls us to have when he speaks. Apparently in some congregations in America, they stand for the Bible reading. We're not going to introduce that here at the CU. But I think what that means is the least that we could do is we can stop checking our emails. But that, like I said, is a small application of today's passage. Let's talk about the big application. It's the one that Moses goes for, hammer and tongs. And we see it in verse 15. It's the evil of idolatry. He says to them, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Now there's the proposition. Look at what he does with it. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether it's formed like a man or a woman, an animal of the earth, a bird that flies in the sky, a creature that moves on the ground or a fish in the waters, basically the entire created realm. Don't make images of those things. And he'll go on to talk about worshipping the heavens, but his overarching point that he's making here is that because God's mode of revealing himself is verbal and not visual, we are not to engage in the practice of idolatry. Now, before we can go further uh, from that point, we actually need to get a concept of, uh, of what an idol is. So I've got a definition for you. 
Um, an idol is an image or a representation of a god used as an object of worship. And so bowing down and worshipping an idol is what the Bible calls idolatry. Now, we often conflate two things together, the worship of gods with the worship of idols. But those two things are actually distinct things. And they both have their own commandment in the Ten Commandments. We'll see that in week five. And the reason that they're separate is because it is possible to worship a false god without the use of an idol. Just like you can try and worship the true god with an idol. They're closely related, but it's important that we understand that they're not the same thing. And this alerts us, I think, to the fact that we can commit idolatry in one of two different ways. The first way is the true worship of false gods. The true worship of false gods. And we saw that at the beginning of the chapter, didn't we? The Israelites bowed down to the Baal of Peor, a false god, using idols. There's genuine worship, but of a false god. The second way is the reverse. It's the false worship of the true God. So in other words, using idols to worship the God of the Bible. And if you want an example of that, you don't have to look very far back because just after Israel received the law at Mount Horeb, they made a golden calf. And they declared, and I quote, this is your God, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, both ways are wrong, and both forms of idolatry there are on view, I think, in this chapter. It's the principle that drives Moses' application. And now, the fundamental issue, I think, with idolatry um, is that an idol, however well crafted, will misrepresent God, always. And that's true because God is a speaking God. Now, let me explain what I mean. I'd like to introduce you to someone. This is Todd. Todd has been a member of my family uh, since I bought him from the reject shop in 2013. Uh, Todd is a tiki. Uh, In a former life, he was an idol. Uh, But now he just sits in my study by my door, reminding me that sin crashes at my door and desires to have me. So I've got to be on my guard and and seek holiness for the Lord. Um, Can you guys say hello to Todd for me? Thank you. That was very welcoming. I appreciate that. And I hope that that's an example we can all engage in to visitors who visit us at the CU. Todd, can you say hello to them, please? Brothers and sisters, idols are dumb. Dumb in both senses of the word. It is dumb to think that you can take an element of the creation that the God of heaven and on earth has created and think that you can accurately represent him in a way that you can comprehend him. But it's also dumb because they can't speak. They are unable to do the very thing that God has determined will reveal him to the world. And so because of that, if any Israelite was to worship an idol, even an idol meant to represent the true God, they are engaging in a practice that is corrupt and evil in the sight of God. You see that down there in verse 25 or 26. You see, an idol by its very nature will take you away from the true worship of God rather than drawing you closer. And it's because of this that Moses says that to make an idol is to act corruptly in verse 16, to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, to arouse him to anger, because God is a jealous God, and he will not let idols distract from the word that he speaks to us. And the great sadness in the history of Israel is that they consistently let idols do exactly that. 
Idolatry was a continual thorn in their side. And it happens and happens again and again until it becomes so bad that God kicks them out of the land that he promised to give them, which is the very thing he threatens to do in this passage in verses 25 to 31, if they do not listen to his verbal word. And so idolatry, it's not a peripheral issue to the law. It actually sits at the heart of it. Now, that's Idol 1001. What about today? We're in the fourth year subjects now, guys, so let's, let's, let's be careful here. Uh, in Moses' day, the implications of worshipping a speaking God were actually pretty straightforward and obvious. You could look around and every other surrounding nation worshipped their gods with idols. And so over time, the Jews became renowned for their peculiar worship of an invisible God. Now, and the same was true in Jesus' day as well. Idols were an integral part of worship. Uh, to, to such an extent that a Roman author once said that it was easier to meet a statue in Athens than it was a person. Uh, and you know, to churn that even more, Christians were actually accused back then of being atheists because they didn't use idols as a part of their worship. So back then, it was actually really easy and obvious to see how this played out in practice. But what about today? Because we live in a world of actual atheism where the idea of bowing down to Todd is just really silly. Well, the first thing I want to say is don't dismiss this chapter as irrelevant. Because while it doesn't seem applicable to you, if you were to go to Asia, India, parts of Africa, the practice of idolatry is alive and kicking. And our brothers and sisters from those parts of the world can tell you uh, that those are things that just come up all the time and they take it very, very seriously. So if you come from one of those backgrounds, a Buddhist background, Hindu, animism, ancestor worship, all of those religions involve idols. And what you need to hear from this passage from God today is that the worship of an idol is the worship of something that is not God. And it does not even remotely represent the true God. But it's more than that. Because just because we don't live in a society that has idols, it doesn't mean that that doesn't have implications for us today. Now, a lot of people, uh, particularly in modern Western society, have kind of gone on this track of psychologizing idols. So they talk about the idols of success and the idols of comfort and those sorts of things. And I'm not going to get into that too much today, so much as to say that I don't think that biblically that's what idolatry is. Idolatry is the creation, taking created things and creating something that we then go and worship. You can have the God of success or the God of comfort, but it's not an idol. And in fact, if you look through the New Testament, you actually see that the logical endpoint of idolatry is where the New Testament takes it in Colossians chapter 3, where it tells us that greed is idolatry. Basically, it's talking about materialism. And that's our big problem in the secular West. If you want to know where our problem of idolatry is, it's the fact that we like stuff and we keep buying it iPhone 2. whatever it is, I don't even know, I don't keep track of it anymore, but right, that's the sort of thing that's actually ingrained in us that we should deal with, but that's not the thing we're going to talk about today. You can talk to me, you can talk to each other about it afterwards, uh, because today I want to talk about another danger of idolatry, and that's the danger of visually representing God. Now, when I showed you those pictures at the beginning of the talk, I said they had the potential to be the most damaging and offensive things you'll ever see, and hopefully by now you can see why. Because if they are used as a means to devotion, to focus worship uh, on the invisible God, even if it's done sincerely, they become a form of idolatry. Paintings, statues, stained glass windows, crucifixes, anything that depicts the invisible God, all of these things become idolatry when they're used for the purposes of worship. And this was actually a big issue in the Reformation uh, because what the reformers were trying to do is they were trying to bring people's attention back to God's spoken verbal 
word. Because that's how you came to know God truly and worship him correctly. And, and while the reformers never went so far as to say, all right, guys, let's get our bricks. We're going on a, a, tra- a trip and we're going to find every stained glass window we can and smash it. But one of the things that they were very clear on is that these things were contrary to scripture and would only ever distract. Now, you might be asking at this point, what about art, things that aren't used in worship? And I would respond by saying, sure. But do you see how dangerous it is? All images communicate something. And if emojis have taught us anything, it's that sometimes they don't communicate what we think they're communicating. Images evoke emotions. They visually impact us. But at their heart, they're anti-intellectual. They bypass reason and reflection. And they don't communicate information. You can't take a picture of faithfulness. And they can't communicate things in such a way that they are clear and accurate, certainly about God. So if you want to go and make art, go for it. Pleasing the eyes is one of God's great created gifts. Being visually stunned by the things out there is fantastic. But understand that the visual is a compromised medium to reveal God. Because the moment you represent God in an image is the moment that you misrepresent him. So when it comes to knowing God, what matters is the ears, not the eyes. We live not by sight, but by faith, attentively listening and trusting our God's words of promise. So let me conclude by saying with Moses, watch yourself. He says it a couple of times in the passage, and he says it because the eye will always be more easily drawn away than the ear. And if we as a community aren't consciously cultivating within ourselves, within uh, our community, a right understanding of God, then the natural direction of travel will be to distort rather than preserve the God who reveals himself at Horeb. How do we do that? Well, it's simple. We do what Moses told the Israelites to do in verse 9. They were to teach what they had seen to their children and to the children that came after them. They were to speak the words that God had spoken to them. And we are to do likewise. We speak his words to ourselves, to each other in our private Bible reading, in our Bible studies, at our churches, in our public meetings, at the ref afterwards. Because if God is revealed and apprehended rightly through words recorded in the Bible, then what we are to do is to put those words on repeat and call each other to hear, to trust and obey those words, because in them is blessing and life. That is the central dynamic of Christianity and the thing that we should pray for now the thing that we should apply ourselves at all times. As our God speaks, we listen and obey.